The following episode contains graphic depictions of war. Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brooke, and this is Eyes Only. The ladder in front of him is green. Everything is green. A world of green illuminated by the night vision goggles Eddie Idris is wearing. Silently, they climb. He tries to mimic the SAS soldiers he is following, yet he is not special forces. They seem like ghosts, and he knows he is not being as silent as they are. They reach the top of the ladder. Below them, over the wall, is the courtyard of the home that has brought them there in the middle of the night. Eddie feels exposed. That is the tricky thing about night vision. You forget the world is not as bright as what you are seeing. His job starts now. It is his job to ensure that the innocent remain unharmed, because the British special forces he is with are about to capture or kill high-priority insurgent targets. Breaking the silence, he shouts for them to come out unarmed, with their hands up. He tells them they are surrounded and to leave their weapons inside and to come out. They are stirring in the house. It remains dark. He can hear voices. He shouts again, telling them to come out with their hands up and to not think that they can avoid being killed if they bring weapons. Three SAS snipers are aimed directly at the door as it opens. What they see shocks Eddie to the core. Three men emerge, weapons drawn, wearing tactical vests. The men try to see in the darkness. Held out in front of one of the men is a three-year-old girl. She had clearly just been woken up and still hasn't realized what is going on. Now she is being used as a shield. Eddie can tell they don't think he can see their weapons. He shouts for them to put her down. The man with the child turns toward his voice, the barrel of his gun following the sound. He raises the girl even higher, yet he still cannot see where to shoot. Eddie can tell he's about to fire anyway. The men are oblivious to the red dots from the snipers aimed directly at their heads. It happens fast, yet for Eddie it happens very slow. The snipers take their shots. Eddie watches the little girl fall with her father. He panics. Had he just failed? Had they just shot a child? Leaping over the wall, he breaks from cover and races toward the bodies. Tearing off his night vision, he flips on a flashlight. The snipers drop down behind him. He has broken procedure. He has rushed in before it is cleared. He has put them all in danger. Eddie feels like he's swimming. He feels anger and fear. Flipping the dead father's body over, he finds the little girl. She is covered in blood. He feels like he's drowning. Children are the worst victims in all of this. He has seen too many die. The girl cries as he wipes the blood off her eyes and tries to check her for bullet wounds. Yet she fights him. That is when it dawns on him. Even at this young age, she would have been taught to never be indecent in front of a man. He carries her out of the courtyard and to their medic. He tells the medic to take her helmet off so that the little girl can see her long hair. As she does, the girl calms down. The medic checks her over and determines that she has not been shot. The blood that is covering her is not hers. The medic tells Eddie that she is okay, and Eddie feels like he's going to collapse. She is not okay. Her father has just been shot in front of her, 
Snapping back into his mission, he proceeds back into the compound. Women and children have now appeared. Some are silent, others are crying. Eddie speaks to them in their native tongue. He works to calm them down. The operation is continuing as the SAS search the compound for intel. Eddie has to make sure no more civilians are in the wrong place. He keeps them all in one room. The men they have taken out are guilty of some horrendous things. He doesn't feel bad for them. These night raids had a reputation. They didn't go after small targets. They went after their leadership. This was not his first operation, and it would not be his last. Life as a special forces interpreter meant taking the same risk as they did. Eddie is an Afghan born and raised. Out of everyone in the group that night, the Taliban want him dead the most. In the Taliban's eyes, he is a traitor. People like him don't last long in this region of the world. A 2009 UNHCR report estimates that every 36 hours, an interpreter like him is killed, most typically by the Taliban. Safety is a rare feeling, so why do they do it? Each one has their own personal reasons. Eddie makes his reasons very clear in his book Special Forces Interpreter, an Afghan on operations with the coalition. He joined for the excitement. Yet more importantly, the desire to effect positive change for his country, to serve people of a nation who had suffered for decades from terrorism, extremism, and regional politics. The reasons for why he joined, and the experiences behind why he views his country this way, are too extensive to list. He tells a story from his youth that might help explain the world he comes from. It is a personal story for him, Yet it is one that most in Afghanistan might already know. Winding their way through the crowd, Eddie and his cousin make their way excitedly toward the best view that they can find. It is Eddie's first time seeing a football match. The stadium is alive with energy. Men in the crowd cuff them over the head as they push their way through. Good-natured gestures an adult would give a child pushing past them rudely. They reach the vantage point they are trying to get to, a spot on the terraces where they can see the field. All around them, people seem upbeat, ready to get lost in a good match. Thousands of people ready to shake off their cares and depression, cheering for their teams that are about to take the field. The stadium grows silent very quickly. Eddie strains to see what is happening. A man is marched out onto the field. Around him are Taliban. It is the late 1990s in Kabul, and the Taliban are in charge. Over the loudspeaker, the man's crimes are read out. He is sentenced to death, and on that spot, he is shot in the head. One would not think a crowd that size could be so silent. It is Eddie's first time attending a football game. It is also the first time he sees someone get shot. The shock of it for him lasts longer than for the crowd. The body is carried off, and the crowd slowly reinvigorates. Through the same microphone the dead man's crimes have been read, a man is now announcing the teams as they run out onto the field. This field would become notorious over the span of the Taliban's control over Kabul. To this day, certain locals believe it is haunted by the dead souls of the hundreds who have been publicly executed there. Eddie had been hopeful when the Russians had left. He dreamed of a bright future for his country. 
instead a darkness has descended upon it. Everyone lives in terror now. During the Taliban's time and power, so many executions were conducted on that very same soccer field that the grass stopped growing due to the blood. Eddie believed in a future for his country. Growing up under the Taliban's rule, he realized he would have to fight for that future. Journalist Ben Anderson spent years interviewing interpreters trapped in Afghanistan. In his book, The Interpreters, he shares those interviews. One thing he makes immediately clear is that it was rarely, if ever, something done for the money. The interpreters who were well paid were ones who long ago had become American citizens. They would deploy on a tour to Afghanistan similar to combat veterans. As of 2014, when the book The Interpreters was written, Afghan interpreters were lucky if they got paid more than $1,000 a month. An incentive to join was the promise of a U.S. visa after at least 12 months of service. A promise that is controversial due to the fact that the United States State Department has a terrible record of keeping that promise. The overwhelming majority of interpreters took the job because they believed that the Taliban would be defeated and their country would be rebuilt. The relationship developed between these interpreters and the soldiers who worked next to and relied on them is very often an extremely close one. A group of Marines, who were interviewed by Anderson, described the interpreters that they worked with. We are quite literally blind without them. They played the most important role in any unit operating in today's dangerous and complex combat environment. They put more on the line for our country than the average American ever will. They are themselves American veterans. Sentiments like these are echoed throughout the ranks and over the decades. An interpreter named Sharosh, who worked with the U.S. Marines for more than 11 years, shared his sentiments in an interview. The Marines I was with really liked me a lot, he says. All of them were my friends. We would stand shoulder to shoulder. We went out on patrols, helping each other. They let me carry and fire weapons. The people who came from the U.S., they don't know anything. They don't know what's going on inside here. So my responsibility was to help them understand. As of this interview back in 2014, Sharosh had been in hiding, facing death threats from the Taliban, unable to get his visa approved. Many of his friends and family have been executed by the Taliban for assisting NATO and U.S. forces. Sharosh recounts his experience going to the police station to seek help. If I go to the police station and say my life is at risk, what will they do about it? They'll say, okay, the government's life is at risk too. We cannot do anything for you. Sharosh eventually, after years, made it out. As of an interview conducted in 2019 with Vice News, he is living in Houston, Texas. Most of his family are still back in Afghanistan. The Taliban, upon discovering that he had made it out, killed his brother to get revenge. As of 2019, he was working very hard to bring all of his family over. He says, I don't want to lose another member of my family. I want them to get out of Afghanistan. Sarosa's situation and the pain he has to live with is a glimpse into a world that is foreign to many. Afghanistan is a place most cannot understand, and it's foolish to try unless you have grown up there. That is why interpreters are so important. They are a bridge. They connect worlds adversely different from each other. 
In April of 2008, Captain Matt Zeller found himself in a world he didn't understand. Scared and overwhelmed, he believed he would die there. Outside the village of Wagiz in Afghanistan, two MRAP personnel carriers on patrol are lost. Using maps with a scale that is too large to follow, one centimeter being equal to one kilometer, they are in the middle of nowhere and cannot navigate the tiny dirt roads they are following. They turn off a creek bed they have been following and onto a road. The map indicates it will lead them to the highway. Within five minutes they realize the map has misled them again. Their interpreter, a man named Farid, jumps out and approaches a farmer, asking him for directions. The farmer points them down a road to the left. As they travel down the route, they approach a village. There are multiple compounds in a mosque. The road is filled with white rocks. They shimmer in the sun. At 3.15 p.m., the lead MRAP vehicle takes a slight turn to the left. An explosion erupts. The 36,000-pound vehicle is catapulted 20 feet forward. The front passenger side massive tire flies 30 feet through the air. The engine is completely shredded by the blast. Following behind in the second MRAP, Zeller sees and feels the explosion. Grabbing the radio, he transmits the readings of their location and they call for a quick reaction force, a wrecker, and air support. Within seconds of the blast, their captain checks on the status of the vehicle that is struck. Everyone is okay, just minor injuries. MRAP stands for Mine Resistant Ambush Protected. The vehicle is designed to protect the people inside of it from explosions. This is what life in Afghanistan looks like. All is calm. There is no attack. They have hit an IED. Setting up a security perimeter, they assess the damage. The calm is painful. Zeller doesn't trust it. Hours go by and they are ordered to defend the damage MRAP. An order that infuriates Zeller because help just doesn't seem to be coming. He doesn't feel like dying for a piece of scrap metal. Yet orders are orders, so they wait. The signs are apparent if you look for them. A motorcyclist who appears multiple times. A man standing watching from a distance. Two young girls walking alone around enemy soldiers, something they wouldn't do unless they were told to. The paranoia creeps in. They are sitting ducks with higher elevation all around them. Zeller's anger is rising. The orders come in to remain there until the wrecker arrives. He wants to blow up the damaged vehicle and continue. It is right about this moment, an explosion knocks him off his feet as a rocket-propelled grenade slams into the side of the MRAP. The calm is over. Machine gun fire erupts from everywhere, its bullets striking the ground around them, kicking up dust. Zeller dives behind one of the tires of the vehicle. He fires back, yet he is unsure where back is. Their captain is injured. He sees him hobbling. Zeller runs to him and gets him to the vehicle. They return fire, yet the targets are unclear. They cannot accurately determine. Another RPG flies overhead, slamming into a nearby wall. The blast disorients Zeller. A mortar round explodes near them, blowing both him and his captain off their feet. 
The reign of mortars continue. After action reports and drone footage would conclude that it's 50 against 15 in this moment. Zeller is scared and he's running out of ammo. The 101st quick reaction force they requested is nowhere to be seen. An eternity is passing slowly and Zeller believes that he is going to die in this awful place. Back at their forward operating base, a quick reaction force is preparing. They are not the ones who have been ordered to rescue them, but they get Zeller's distress call. The 101st QRF is supposed to be responding, yet they clearly are nowhere near, so they break orders to rescue them. Janice Shinwari isn't a fighter. His contract with the U.S. doesn't require him to carry a weapon. Hearing their distress calls, he grabs a rifle and joins the group, and they head toward Wuggies. From inside the truck, Janice can see Zeller. He is lying inside of a ditch. He had met Zeller for a few seconds ten days earlier, yet they don't know each other. At some point, Zeller had been knocked out by a mortar round. He is awake now and taking heavy fire. What he cannot see is two Taliban fighters sneaking slowly and quietly towards the ditch he is in. He is as good as dead if Janice doesn't do something. The problem is, Zeller doesn't know Janice. He is just as likely to shoot him in the fog of war if he engages them. So he does the only thing he can think of. He dives full force into the ditch, slamming into Zeller and knocking him down, forcing the wind out of him. Janice pops back up from the ditch and shoots both the Taliban fighters. The weapon Janice has grabbed is an AK-47. Zeller hears it go off above him. He believes he is dead. The US doesn't typically use AK-47s. Yet, looking up, he sees the friendly face of Janice. A face he vaguely remembers. Janice tells him, I am a translator. You are not safe. He pulls Zeller up, and looking past him, Zeller can see the two bodies of the Taliban fighters, and that is when he realizes, this guy has just saved his life. The next morning, Zeller wakes up, the events of the day before running through his head. He doesn't even know the interpreter's name who just saved him. He goes looking for him. He finds Janice sitting alone in the dining hall eating. Sitting down next to him, Zeller is torn up. For the first 26 years of his life, he didn't know Janice existed, and now he owes him a life debt. A deep friendship is started that day. Janice would become the most important person to their mission in Afghanistan. In an interview for the Amleto documentary series, Zeller describes the importance of having an interpreter. He says, you can build a computer that will translate for you. That computer doesn't have cultural context. It can't tell you that it's been coming to a village for the past two years and it knows everyone there. That this guy's a liar and that guy is honest. Or that if the kids don't come out and ask for candy, that is an indicator that they have been told to stay away because there's about to be an ambush. Only someone like Janice and all the other interpreters can do that. The bond developed between the two men would grow. They would call each other brothers. Before Zeller left, he asked Janice if he wanted to sign up for a new visa program that had been created. Yet Janice declined. 
He wanted to keep fighting for his country. He told Zeller that one day you will come here and you will visit me and we will be at peace. When Zeller left Afghanistan, he told Janice that if he ever needed to get out of there, he would do everything in his power to bring him to the U.S. He would fly a plane there himself if he had to. Janice would continue working for the Americans. He would save four other American soldiers' lives and work as a translator for 12 senators who were visiting Afghanistan. His service is well documented and respected, a fact that was not lost on the Taliban. They put a bounty on his head. His picture went out with the orders to kill on sight. He became one of the most wanted interpreters in Afghanistan of the time. As is the sad case with people like Janice, his life was not only targeted, but the lives of his wife and two kids. He was facing a fate thousands have before him and thousands would after him. When he signed up to work with the Americans, the contract stated that if he served at least a year's worth of honorable and respectable service, he would receive a visa for him and his family. That moment came that he had worked for. He needed out of Afghanistan. He called Zeller, asking him to sponsor him for a visa. They started the process. They estimated that it would take about six months. So Janice went into hiding. His name on a long list of people who had helped the U.S. and had been marked for assassination. Separated from his family for their safety, he waits for the promise made to him to be fulfilled. As he waits, every 36 hours, another one just like him is murdered. Their deaths used as propaganda in a war that never seems to end. This is the first half of a two-part story. If you want to help, please check out the website noonleftbehind.org. I will link it in the description. They are an organization that helps evacuate and get visas for Afghan interpreters. Check out the second half to this episode, and as always, thanks for listening.